0: New Year, everyone. We certainly hope you had a great holiday season and we wanted to say thanks for joining us for the first Frarian Smith podcast episode of 2023. Caden, when I jumped on to record this episode, the technology we used told us that it's been 14 days since we've recorded a podcast episode. I know I really enjoy just the breather at the end of the season, and it was just a great holiday season. How was yours?
1: It was great. Happy New Year, Noah. Happy New Year to all the listeners. Hope they had a, a great New Year's and a great holidays with family and friends. But now nah, you know how it goes. Me and Noah work in this sports industry, and the fall is a grind for us. So it was definitely good to relax a little bit, still watch some football and still analyze up top while watching it, but just spend some time with some friends and family and definitely had a great holiday. Can't complain.
0: I know you spent a lot of time in Charleston down right at the new year, and I, I also wanted to just ask, Caden, what was your best Christmas present this year?
1: Oh, man, it's it's tough. Shout out to my mother. She went extra hard this year, and I think that I'm taking a trip to New York, and I got a, a nice trench coat, and I think that that trench coat's probably going to take the cake. I feel like a different person. that. It's the first time I've had a trench coat, so I'm definitely looking forward to walking the city streets in a, in a city that you and me both love wearing that coat and, and definitely staying warm. I'm going to have to give the top spot as far as gifts go to that trench coat because it's, it's chef's kiss.
0: I did want to give your mom an honorable mention shout out as well. She got you some new podcasting equipment as well. So you love that the podcast is going to improve moving into the new year. I think for me, I will tell you, I ended up buying myself a Christmas present and it was actually my first pair Of Air Force Ones, and I'm pretty excited about that. They look nice. I got a couple compliments the other day when I was wearing them. So that was my best present, but I'll give my sister an honorable mention. She came through with a really nice tie and pocket square collection. So I think the common theme between the two of us, Caden, is we like to be well-dressed.
1: No, it's all about the clothes. And I think we should also just continue to advocate for getting yourself the gift. I know I got myself some shoes as well. Got a little jewelry in the wrist, wrist that I got for myself. And you might have that moment. I had some people asking, oh, what'd you get for Christmas? Did you get that? And I'm like, oh, I got I got it for me. Like, who got that for you? I got it for me. And that's okay. It's okay to treat yourself a little bit around the holidays, maybe even just in life in general. Just a, a big advocate for treating yourself.
0: Yeah, I am as well a big advocate. Well, Caden, let's get to talking about some football Uh, we've got seven bowl games to recap on today's episode, but I know before we get to those games, Caden, you've got a really exciting opportunity coming up next week. I wanted to give you a chance to toot your own horn. Tell our listeners a little bit about this opportunity that you have coming up next week.
1: Yeah, I have to give a huge shout out to my friend, high school, or college quarterback and roommate, Zach Thomas, for somehow getting me involved in this. It's been a, a couple months journey being in contact with the people at the Bear Bryant organization, but I will be at the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Awards next week in Houston, Texas. Super excited about that. Just for the opportunity to really talk to some of the greatest coaches that have, have touched the college football season this year with guys like Sonny Dykes, guys like Kirby Smart, those two obviously playing in the college championship. So some big names and then other guys like Josh Heupel just doing great things in the in the coaching space this year just excited to shake some hands talk to some people and, and really chop it up with some of the best coaches in the country this year so huge shout out to everyone involved with that huge shout out to my company on 3 for for getting me down there as well and definitely a great opportunity
0: well that sounds awesome i'm really excited for you i think willie fritz is going to be there as well for tulane oh, they yeah. took down uh usc so should be a lot of fun i hope you went out and bought like some you know like a nice suit or something to look good uh,
1: you you know how we're coming. You you talked about the pocket squares and the details that you had this Christmas. I don't know if I'm going to be at your level of freshness, but I'll be out here. I'll be doing my best.
0: Well, let's jump into this historic bowl season for the Sun Belt. It started with the league getting seven member institutions into bowl season, which was a record. We saw four teams from the West, Louisiana, South Alabama, Southern Miss, and Troy make it into bowl season. And then three teams from that Eastern Division, Coastal Carolina, Georgia Southern, and Marshall. Kayden, it was a bit of a mixed bag here. The Sunbelt started 3-0 and in bowl season. I know you and I were texting back and forth like, hey, is the Sunbelt about to go undefeated? Because you felt like down the stretch where there was some very winnable games. But unfortunately, they couldn't carry that early momentum throughout going 0-4 in their final four bowl games, including 0-2 against American Athletic Conference Schools. Cain, okay, as I mentioned, it was a bit of an up-and-down bowl season for the league. What were your overall thoughts about the Sun Belt's performance during bowl season?
1: I think one of my bigger takeaways from bowl season overall is it's just hard to win football games. I think when you take these bowl games, they're very much in a vacuum. They're very much against an unfamiliar opponent, and you see coaches are willing to pull out the stops, pull out some trick plays, and I think another thing with the Sun Belt is I think we're accustomed to seeing the style of play that the Sun Belt Conference has to offer with strong defensive play, a lot of strong running games, and seeing that contrast with the other teams from other conferences was very interesting. We saw some teams get a little bit overwhelmed with the style of play that they played from other conferences and the, vice versa with some of the strong defensive play maybe we saw from some Sunbelt teams. So I think it was just cool to watch these different conferences kind of lean into their talents and see how it shook, shook out in all of these games for sure.
0: We're looking at you, South Alabama, when we talk about teams that got overwhelmed by a Conference USA offense. But yeah, I think those are some great points, Caden. I think the other thing that's going to be interesting moving forward, we've talked about how crucial bowl season is in terms of messaging for the conference, and I think what will be an interesting thing to keep an eye on in the future, we did see a lot of opt-outs in these games, and... It makes you wonder how big will bowl season be moving forward if some of your top players, I mean, a guy like Michael Jefferson, could have been a difference maker for Louisiana but doesn't play. I'm interested to see how that dynamic plays out in years to come.
1: It's going to be interesting. I definitely think that the NFL draft process has a lot to do with that, I think the transfer portal is now starting to be a little bit more relevant in that process as well and adding a new reason for players not to play in these bowl games. But I think if you look at these teams and these individuals that are on these teams, when you heard on the broadcast, a lot of the times there's no bad blood between the people who aren't playing in these bowl games and their teammates. I think obviously you want your best players playing in every single bowl game, but I think it's just not a reality that exists right now. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how you said those dynamics will change going forward. I think the stage you're on definitely means a lot. I think if you're a team, even like Troy and UTSA who are going up against each other, two conference champions with a ton to prove in that game versus some of these other bowl games where you're a six-win team sneaking into a bowl game and maybe you're a guy who has an opportunity to play at the next level. You might not value it as much. So I think it's definitely going to be interesting to watch going forward. But at the end of the day, I think we also have the opportunity to see some younger talent and some backups, maybe who are a little bit scrappier, a little bit hungrier, get to play in these games as well if there's some guys opting out. So I think the level of play, I think, will never fall off as far as who's in these games and the quality of the competition. But I do think it will be interesting moving forward to see how the opt-out decisions go and obviously guys are getting commended as well for maybe having every reason not to play in games but coming back and still playing in them
0: okay just a couple years ago it would have been unthinkable not to play in a bowl game you as a former player if you were if, if one of your teammates one of your better players chose not to play how does that make you feel as as a player that's fought all year long for this opportunity
1: It's definitely player to player and individual to individual. I think Leonard Fournette was the first player, one of the first people to get that momentum going as far as opting out and preparing yourself for the NFL season. And guys like that have been, their bodies have gone through a lot throughout the whole season. I know his was very much injury related and the season's long and the season's a grind. And I think none of these stories are really going to be on the surface as as black and white as we see it. I think we're never going to know the full background of why these players are opting out of games. But as long as it's all coming from a good place, I think that's what matters. I think of guys like we've had in the past, like a Jamar, Jamar, DeMarco Jackson, a Shamar Jean Charles, people who probably had reasons to opt out of those bowl games because they're playing in the NFL. I wouldn't mind those guys having to go get more preparation, do what they had to do, especially if their bodies were banged up. Then moving on to that next chapter, is not There's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's always going to depend on your relationship with your teammates, what you have going on in the building and how that is. But there could be situations where maybe there is a guy who's a little bit more of an individual, kind of isn't one of those meshing team guys. And when he goes to off to maybe hit the transfer maybe, or maybe opt out of a bowl game, that's where it becomes a little bit more of a problem. But I think all of these issues are going to be more individual. I think it's only going to put more of a premium on some of those guys who do decide to play in those bowl games. I think it's going to be looked at from the team, the coaches, any other NFL draft prospect people, whatever, whoever's looking at the game is always going to salute those guys for playing in those games. So I think it's only going to create upside for some people and not really looked at as frowned upon eventually by people who decide to opt out.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to pay attention to moving forward. Well, Caden, as I mentioned, we've got seven games to get into and I am itching to recap some football here. We haven't done it in a while. Uh, Let's start with uh, the game, the Cure Bowl between number 24, Troy, number 25, UTSA. Troy goes on to hang on. They come from behind in this game and win 18 to 12. It was their first bowl win since 2018. They're actually on a five-game bowl winning streak at this point. They've won their last five. They would set a program record with 12 wins this year, and in the process, they snapped UTSA's 10-game winning streak at the end of the year, and... Kane, okay, this was the prototypical Troy Trojans football game. They trail early in this game with 621 to go in the first half. It's 12-0 in favor of UTSA. Then Kamani Baidal gets a big rushing touchdown, and they go on to score 18 unanswered points, and their defense did their thing in the fourth quarter. Kane, okay, this was a prototypical Troy game, and they pull out another key victory.
1: Yeah, I think the conference championship and us being there in the building and seeing that in person, watching the Troy offensive performance that we saw kind of lulled us asleep and kind of made us forget what this team is all about and how they've been winning all year. And I think when you saw the start of the game, you saw some miscues from the offense. You saw that safety in the back of the end zone to give up the first points of the game and the offense not even getting to that passing that 50 yard line until there are four minutes left in the first half. I think those offensive miscues and not being able to run the ball. And I think they also had some struggles protecting Gunnar Watson. this game. He got sacked six times. Seeing that was very normal, but then you look at the other side of the ball, Troy's defense, man, doing what they do best, getting turnovers, keeping teams out of the end zone, and giving their team a chance to win every single game. I think it was a beautiful way for them to cap off the season, for them having the key interception. The key moments in this game were defensive moments that propelled the offense and set them up, and I think... That's just how it goes for Troy. Their best attribute this year was their ability to keep teams from scoring and just being able to win games when it mattered, and that's what they did. And even if you look on paper, a team like UTSA who lights up the scoreboard left and right was no match for a Troy defense that's been just so consistent and so great all season.
0: Man, I got to admit, I would have loved to seen Troy's defense against USC in the Cotton Bowl. That would have been fun just to see. Um, but you know, really, I think the old saying goes defense wins championships. And in this case, defense wins bowl championships. And, you know, you talked about the defense, but let's dig in a little bit more. There was that critical forced fumble after Gunnar Watson threw an interception early on in this game. They get it right back. Then you have Richard Jubinar who had another interception with 34 seconds left in the second half. And then you move to the third quarter. They force and recover two fumbles And then finally, K.J. Robertson, who we saw after the Sunbelt Championship, he just loves his cupcakes. He got another one here, big third-quarter interception, and they had their backs up against the end zone. And then on top of it, you look at Carlton Marshall, he does his thing, 14 tackles. This defense that we have spent so much time talking about this year went out with a bang.
1: Super fitting for Carlton Marshall to end his last game of his college career as the leading tackler of the game with 14 tackles. And you talked about those five turnovers. I think they were just truly the biggest key in the game. Richard Jubiner gets his hands on an interception and a forced fumble. KJ Robertson's interception and that return that he set up was the setup of the game that really won the game when you see the next player a couple of plays later that Rajay Johnson scores a touchdown. But I think another big slept on factor when you look at the performance of this defense has to be. What they were able to do against Frank Harris, a quarterback who is regarded as one of the best quarterbacks in the nation this year, had the worst QBR he's ever had, the worst passer rating he's ever had in a game this season, and the least amount of passing yards he's had in a game, not including that Rice blowout game where he barely played a little bit. But I think what they were able to do against one of the nations, not only top quarterbacks, but top offenses, was super impressive in this one. You have to give your hats off to Troy in this game for getting the job done on their end of the ball and once they had the lead in the game we all kind of had that feeling in our gut that okay now it's really time for Troy to keep this team out of the end zone once they have a lead we know they're great at protecting that lead when they get it and they shut the team out they shut um UTSA out for two straight quarters in the second half and it's really the first time that team's been shut out in two quarters if you look at the entire season they've only gone one quarter a game here and there not scoring but two quarters shutout for one of the top offenses in the nation is huge for Troy
0: Troy's offense was largely, though, ineffective in this game. Just 169 yards, ran for just 47 yards. Caden, this was actually only their fourth win this year when rushing for less than 100 yards. We've talked about that a lot. I didn't really feel like Gunnar Watson had a great game through two interceptions in the second quarter. Uh, Moving, you know, looking ahead a little bit, I think there's probably some concerns on offense heading into next year, and I think that has to improve because they're probably not going to have the same level of defense next season, because you've got a lot of guys that are turning pro.
1: Definitely. And I think when you look at this team headed into next year, you don't want Troy, listen, Troy, Troy won the conference championship. They did what they had to do and they figured out their formula of winning, but their formula of winning is still not an ideal formula. You want your offense to be able to put points up, be able to move the ball a little bit better and help your defense out. And I think going forward, they're in a great position being conference championships, being conference champions, and still being able to take a look back Reassess and reevaluate their offense and what changes they need to make on that side of the ball, and then on defense, having to get replace guys like a legendary Carlton Marshall in the program. But I think the good news for this Troy team is they all understand that. I think you can feel it viscerally when you're on a team and you understand that one side of the ball is producing a little bit more. And I think the people who are on this team who saw a champion, who, championship and will be able to hold a ring will understand what it takes now from a psychology standpoint, from just an engagement, from an off season standpoint, and a training standpoint. Now it's just about taking care of those little offensive details you need to fix, replacing some of those guys on defense. So I think Troy is maybe not going to be as best set up as some of these other teams on paper. But when you look at who they bring back from the championship team and some of the small changes they'll be able to make to achieve the same success, you have to like the position they're in moving forward.
0: Okay. And I loved it. I don't know if you saw this the other day, but a friend of the podcast, Adam Prendergast, who leads the communications efforts at Troy, they put out a tweet It had millions of views, a lot of salty Alabama fans, and it was that Troy had the most wins of any team in the state of Alabama last year. The University of Alabama only had 11, so you love Troy winning the messaging battle. But The last thing here that I wanted to talk about, Troy will end the year ranked, and I wanted to just ask, how big is that for this program to end the year in those final AP rankings?
1: I think it's huge, and I think because they earned that very late in the season, it makes you wonder why didn't they earn it sooner in the year. But I think going into next year, I think that can only help them. I think if Troy can maybe hold on to enough talent, have not not have as many guys leave, I think there's no reason not starting next year to have them in those rankings. And I think once you start the season in those rankings, it's a lot easier to stick and stay in those rankings So I think it's huge For this Trobe program To end the season In these rankings And you have to hope For them next year That they can start the season In the rankings As defending conference champions Who may not have proved That they can win The prettiest way But have proven that They figured winning out And that under John Summerall They can beat anyone At any time I know that the Alabama little <laughs> beef That they have with Alabama Maybe they're not able To beat the Crimson Tide But if you look at this Troy team and this defense Man if this defense plays good I think they can genuinely Beat anyone in the country So I think it's going to be Interesting next year To see who they bring back who they re-up with and how they can continue to have a strong defensive culture and impact that can carry their team to amazing heights like I did this year.
0: Hey, here's all I'm saying. Schedule the game. Scheduled against Alabama. scheduled against Auburn. Like those two teams, they historically don't play the South Alabamas and the Troys in the state. Let's do it. Let's have some fun. I think those would be some great matchups moving forward. But Caden, Let's move ahead and talk about Southern Miss versus Rice. Southern Miss wins 38-24, to the program's first bowl win since 2016. They finished the year 7-6 and six under second-year head coach Will Hall. They only trailed at one point during this game, and they would end up being just one of three Sunbelt teams uh, to win a bowl game. We caught a lot of flack early on in the season from the Southern Miss fans, but let's give them their flowers because this team played some really good football down the stretch and they stole the hearts of a lot of Sunbelt fans during bowl season. And Kane, let's talk about another guy who just stole the show, Frank Gore Jr. He finishes with three total touchdowns, a third-quarter touchdown throw to his favorite target, Ty Mims. He also ran for two more, and Kane, we're not even to the good stuff yet. He ran for three rushes of over 50 yards in this game, ran for 268 yards in the game's final three quarters. Set a program record for rushing yards, set an NCAA record. He broke Cam Peoples' his record. And oh, by the way, he also went viral on social media after the game. Frank Gore just had a night in Mobile.
1: I mean, just one of the best running back performances I've ever seen. I'm a football junkie. I love watching the extended highlights of these games. And I will confess that I watched the highlights to this game more than once just on my own accord just to watch Frank Gore put on that show. But you have to give credit to his offensive line. They had plays where they gave him some great running lanes and those just felt like the defense was dead to rights as soon as it started the play. I mean, Frank Gore's already looking at the second and third level, making guys miss and capitalizing on those run lanes and those cutback lanes. But even when the offensive line didn't show up, he was creating his own opportunities. He was so patient back there. He made all the right cuts, and it just really looked like he almost knew that the defenders were going to miss before the play, and he was doing it. He had a master class performance at the running back position. And, of course, it's not a signature Frank Gore Jr. game without him throwing a touchdown pass. His eighth career touchdown pass really just, I think, solidifying himself. Is not one of the best running backs. It's not one of the best offensive players. one of the best and most versatile players in the entire country with his performance.
0: How cool was it, too? He was able to do it in front of his dad, who was in the stands watching that game. And let's be honest, Kane, the only person that even remotely slowed down Frank Gore Jr. was his auntie after the game nearly got in on that postgame interview. (laughs) But, you know, Rice's defense was just not able to slow the guy down.
1: No, they weren't, and I genuinely feel sorry for their defensive backs and their secondary in this game. They were (laughs) tasked with tackling Frank Gore Jr. probably five too many times than they wanted to. If you're a defensive back and your job is to defend the pass all day and you're in coverage and you look up and Frank Gore Jr. is coming at you with a head of steam, you're yelling at your defensive line and your linebackers from the sideline. You don't want that to happen, so got to give kudos to Frank Gore Jr. for making probably all 11 defenders on Rice uncomfortable at some point during the game, making them miss at some point, even if they didn't get the secondary guys on that play where he was running the ball, he definitely got them with his arm on that touch passing touchdown too. So just a masterful performance by Frank Gore Jr. Can't say enough about the performance. And I'm glad you said that his dad was in the house because I think the spirit of his dad was on the field with him for sure. It looked like there was both Gores combined playing in this game the way he was tearing Rice's defense apart.
0: Hey, Caden, this was a really just great game for Southern Miss because the other thing that they did was they had a fantastic offensive day. And this, much like Troy, has been a team known all year long for their defense, but their offense shined in a big way in this game. They got some really good performances at the wide receiver position. Jacarius Caston, Jason Brownlee combined for 166 yards and two touchdowns in this game. Brownlee has announced he's going to the NFL Uh, after this season Uh, and then you know to bring it up as well Trey Lowe was actually pretty effective in this game didn't throw an interception through two touchdown passes only threw the ball 16 times Uh, but Caden I did find it interesting right after this game Trey Lowe announced that he's in the transfer portal along with it feels like every other quarterback at Southern Miss Uh, but let's talk about the offense here It, it was a really good day for Southern Miss's offense.
1: It was you have to tip your hat off to Trey Lowe in this game I think the ideal day for Southern Miss, if you look at some of the good quarterback performance they've had this year, is all about really not asking the quarterbacks to do much and having a great day on the ground. And Frank Court Jr. was his best friend in this game. Everybody on the defensive side of the ball was far more worried about him than Trey Lowe, and he capitalized on I think he was especially accurate in this game, especially on those deep balls. He had a beautiful deep pass to cast, and also hit him in the back of the end zone on a back shoulder fade, hit Brownlee on one as well. Just really capitalized and didn't throw any interceptions in this game, but He did have two fumbles, and it was one of them was super egregious. He was getting sacked and tried to almost hand the ball to Frank Gore Jr. He has to take better care of the ball no matter where he's at at his next destination. But you bring it up, there's a couple guys on this team who we saw play quarterback for Southern Miss who are now in the transfer portal. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what quarterback talent they bring in. Maybe if they bring in a guy from the transfer portal or their signing class. I think if I'm personally a quarterback and I watched... Frank Gore Jr. have the performance that he had running for 300 yards. I know that the quarterbacks (laughs) for best friends is going to be a running back. So if you have that established, I think it might be something that's enticing to a guy moving forward that's playing under center for Southern Miss. But have to give your hats off for Trello in his last performance he had with Southern Miss before hitting the transfer portal.
0: Caden, in this game, uh, Southern misses defense, I know you love a good defense that uh, bends but doesn't break. That feels like what they were in this game. They gave up 425 yards, 303 of them through the air. It was the second most uh, this year. They created a little bit of havoc. Uh, Three sacks, seven TFLs. Dalen Gill had a really good performance in this game, but it wasn't their best defensive performance in this contest.
1: Yeah, and what really stood out to me was the play of their secondary. I mean, I think... Bryce's quarterback and wide receiver core had an absolute day throwing the ball around the yard. They mean A.J. Padgett ended the day with 295 yards and three touchdown passes. Luke McCaffrey, brother of Christian McCaffrey, seven catches for 67 yards. The secondary just didn't play great in this game, but I think you talked about it. it. They played best when it mattered most. They had a shutout to start the game in the first quarter and had a shutout to end the game in the fourth quarter, and that's really what ended up Mattering most. Them getting that early lead was huge, and then them hanging on to it down the stretch was huge. And you talked about it, they had a couple great players around the line of scrimmage and the linebacking and defensive line core playing great in this game that 11 tfls and dalen gill had a monster day and this nasty bunch did what they had to do when it matters most so you want your second year to obviously play better in a game you don't want a quarterback throwing for near 300 yards and three touchdown passes in any game but have to get credit to them for playing their best defense when it mattered most because that's really what propelled them to victory in this game alongside frank jr's amazing performance obviously
0: hey a great end to the year for southern miss seven and six in the second year under will hall they're trending in the right direction and they will probably be a trendy pick to, you know, be one of the better teams in the West next year. Well, Caden, we'll move on to the final victory in bowl season for the Sun Belt. It came on December seventeenth between Marshall and UConn. Marshall wins this twenty-eight to fourteen, and they snapped a three-game bowl losing streak. Uh, Marshall was really hot down the down the stretch, and it almost goes a little bit unnoticed. But they end the year on a five-game winning streak. Uh, again, one of just three Sun Belt schools to win a bowl game and. Caden, this was the prototypical Marshall game. Their defense forced four turnovers, including a late Abraham interception, and the running backs took over. That's been the formula all year. It's worked for them, and they ran it here against UConn to perfection.
1: Yeah, the same way we talked about Troy winning in very much Troy fashion. I think Marshall very much won in Marshall fashion. You talked about it. Listen, Marshall, when they line up for football games, they don't care how they win. They don't care if they win by one point or a bunch of points. They're going to continue to play their style of ball throughout the whole game, and that's what they did in this game. I think their run game... Up front, and those guys they have were just too much for them. They didn't have very many explosive plays, but Rasheed Ali broke off like one 30-yard run. But aside from that, they didn't really have many explosive plays in the run game, but they got those five and six yards when it mattered, and every possession they would just wear on this UConn team, who we talked to, Coach Moore, is a little bit younger, and I just don't think they were able to match the physicality of Marshall through the entirety of this ballgame, and credit to the defense as well for handling business outside of that one quarter where UConn's running back did some good things. But they really played a masterful game. And I think that the physicality and the strengths that Marshall had going into this game, they were able to really lean on and win despite it not looking like a total lopsided victory. I know that those guys at UConn were definitely having some aches and pains after this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was standing sideline for this game, Caden, and this game, despite the scoreline, just was never in doubt. This was a very young UConn squad that Marshall just took full advantage of. Cain, okay, one of the favorite things that I enjoyed about standing sideline in this game was finally getting to see the dream rushing attack. We've been dreaming all year long about seeing Rashina Ali, Kalen Laybourne in the same backfield, both running well. And in this game, that pair combines for 182 yards on the ground in a touchdown. They run for 182 of the 210 for the team. It was Marshall's seven 200 plus yard game of the year. And. Caden, uh, four of their last five games to end the year, this was a Marshall team that they went back to their identity down the stretch, and it really paid off in a big way.
1: No, and also Cam Fancher is the other head of that three-headed monster, and he didn't have the best game on the ground. They didn't ask him to do too much, and he also had two costly fumbles, which he's going to have to clean up, but you talked about it. This Marshall team, we're not going to get into any preseason predictions of what we think is going to happen next year, but I think if you just look at this Marshall team, Aside from Troy, I think they look in the mirror and they know their identity probably better than any other team. They know that their running backs are going to churn. They know that their offensive line is going to get pushed. And they know their defense is going to show up and play big for them every year. And this Cam Fancher evolves and becomes a better and better quarterback. He's only going to be able to elevate this team. So I think this Marshall team, listen, they're not going to be super scary. But people who play football, people who have to play Marshall, it's going to be very scary for them if they can continue to stay true to what they do and lean into their talent moving forward. A great performance for them against this UConn team who I know is definitely glad that they're not in the Sunbelt Conference anytime soon.
0: Hey, I'm going to go ahead and say it, Kane. I know you said we didn't want to get into preseason predictions next year, but Marshall's a top two team in the East next season. I'm not going to say that they're going to win the league, but there's a, they're, they're going to be a good football team next year with guys like Fancher coming back and Rasheen Ali. So definitely a team to keep an eye on. We talk a little bit about Cam Fancher here. He is the future of this team. As you mentioned, didn't play his best football game, 93 yards, two touchdowns, threw an interception. But, Kane, one of the things he did in this game, which is what he needed to do, he needed to take care of the football, and he did it when he needed to.
1: Yeah, he definitely played at times not as well as you'd want. But I think the good thing about him is that anytime that he didn't play well in this game, anytime he did have a costly turnover, never really turned into points. His defense had his back when it mattered. And I think that's not something as a quarterback you want to rely on, but it's definitely something that's nice to have. He had a couple of good balls to damage. I know he had the first touchdown of the game thrown to him on a, a quick little slant route, a good connection that he's had all season. But I think like you talked about I think Cam's going to be a guy who can only elevate this team and he's gotten more and more efficient as the season's gone along and I'm really just excited for his off season. I really hope that he can get that connection with his receivers going a little bit more, maybe get develop some more pocket presence when we look into the spring and fall camps and I think if his off is probably the most important off season really across the country, not across the country, sorry, across the the conference, I'm not going to get too big with it, but I think if he has a really good off season and I think his floor and ceiling that he's working with right now is going to really be able to take this Marshall team over the edge. And I think, not not super ridiculous to say, but if he comes out and is just one of the three best quarterbacks in this conference next year, look out for a ranked Marshall team. That's all I'm going to say.
0: Hey, you know, the other thing that they've been good at all year long and they were great in this game is creating more chaos. Nine TFLs include, and then they also had those three interceptions, Damian Barber, Micah Abraham, and Also, a a surprise entrant into the interception game. Wide receiver Corey Gamage had an interception in this game. Uh, They both allowed scores, uh, were rushing touchdowns in that third quarter by the young UConn running back. They gave up just 144 yards on the ground. This was a statement game for Marshall, and they played their best football.
1: And you talk about it, man. Credit to Gamage for getting his hands on an interception. I know that's every wide receiver's dream is to catch an interception on those Hail Mary plays right before halftime. But no, you have to give your hats off to Marshall's defense as a whole for taking care of business. I mean, they held them to 3-12, 3-for-12 to on third down, 0-for-2 on fourth down, which some people count as turnovers or technically giving the ball back to your offense in those scenarios. But I think my favorite touchdown of the entire bowl season of all all across the Sunba, all across the nation, was the Damian Barber Big man touchdown. I mean, who doesn't love a big man touchdown? He catches the ball on the screen. He's 6'3", all of 285 pounds, just rumbles and stumbles 34 yards for a touchdown. It was great to see that. But I think, listen, they're establishing a defensive culture in Marshall to where it's not only they're playing well, but they're playing and having a good time with it. When you're creating tone nerves, you're making plays and you're feeding off of each other. You get in that mode where you feel like you're an unstoppable defense. And I think that a little blip and you have to give credit to Victor Rosa for making just some amazing plays in the third quarter and single-handedly scoring by himself on some of those explosive runs. But outside of that, man, Marshall played an excellent game and those guys had a really fun time getting after this UConn offense.
0: Hey, all I'm going to say is if Troy had had Corey Gamage, they might have been a 13-win football team and playing in the cotton bowl uh, and chase Bryce probably wouldn't have had the miracle on the mountain part <laughs> two, but Caden, we'll move on South Alabama versus Western Kentucky. And if there was one game during bowl season, Caden, that I was most disappointed about, it was this game. Western Kentucky wins 44 to 23 South Alabama went into this game, searching for their first bowl win. And they're going to have to wait at least another year for that. They're now and three in bowl games. Caden, the first half of this game was ugly. It was 31-3 to at the half, uh, but one bright spot for South Alabama here. They do finish the year with 10 wins, which was the most in program history. So a lot of great things happened, but definitely will be a sour taste in their mouth here at the end of the year. And Caden, this was a defensive nightmare. South Alabama came in as arguably one of the best defenses in the Sun Belt this year. We hyped it up on the preview. And all Austin Reed and Western Kentucky did was shred it. They gave up 497 yards through the air. It was the most in a game since 2017. 677 yards of total offense, the most in program history. They never got a sack on the quarterback. Minimal penetration, just three TFLs. The only bright spot on defense, Caden, was that Yam Banks interception. That was probably the play of bowl season. One of the best interceptions I think I've ever seen. And it came with, probably the player who's been your favorite player all year long
1: it did and i have to give a shout out to roddy jones on that call he made a great call while they were replaying it saying that it was holiday season it's not christmas time without the yams and yam banks with the interception so a huge friend of the podcast moment there, talking about one of my favorite players in the conference and someone we had on the podcast but i think it starts and ends right there with their night i mean it was not a great night and we've talked about the nightmares that i've had going up against this western kentucky offense and i I had a little bit of PTSD watching this one. No, I'm not going to lie. You mentioned it. Austin Reed was sacked zero times in this game. I said going into this game, you have to get pressure on the quarterback if you're playing Western Kentucky or else it will turn into a seven on seven day where the quarterback's back there smoking a cigarette, having a great time and throwing it deep to all his guys. And that's what happened in this game. The vertical passing game was insane for Western Kentucky in this one. I mean, Austin Reed was stepping into all his passes, (laughs) throwing darts left and right. Guys were getting past the defenders, and even if they weren't getting past defenders, Western Kentucky's receivers were doing a great job of creating yards after the catch. I mean, they had three wide receivers at 100-plus yards, and they just could not be stopped on this day. It was tough to see, and if you're a South, Carolina, a South Alabama defender, just know that I've been there before. It's understand it's okay. You can still keep your head high, but that's just what happens when you play Western Kentucky offensive attack, and you do not slow them down at all.
0: Hey, and as we found out when we talked to Brian Ellis, if you're a South Alabama defender, don't blame Western Kentucky's offensive coordinator because it was probably just Austin Reed doing Austin Reed things. But, Caden, it gets overshadowed a little bit in this game, but Carter Bradley actually had a really good day when you look at it on paper, threw for 360 yards, set a South Alabama record for completions in a game with 36. It was his seventh game this year with three touchdowns, and down the stretch of the year, 13 touchdowns over his last four games. And Caden, here's why I'm really excited. Carter Bradley's coming back next year, and he might be able to easily stake a claim to being the best quarterback in the Sun Belt next year, although we did hear that Grayson McCall's coming back, so we'll have to see how that plays out.
1: Yeah, you have to like what you've been seeing out of Carter Bradley for the entire season. I think this game was more of a product of the Western Kentucky offense than the South Alabama offense, I think, and made some great catches, some tough catches in this game. He was pr- productive for them towards the end of the season very much. But I think, look, Carter Bradley was playing catch-up this entire day. When you have Western Kentucky up 21-0, to zero, you can't even play your style of ball. I think the South Alabama offense is best when they can be balanced, and they only had 25 rushing attempts in this game, only 12 carries for LeDamian Webb. The first, oh, sorry, every every game this season, you're looking at this team and they're running 40 or 50 times a game. But I think you look at the last time and the only time that they've run for less than 25 rushing attempts was when they lost to Troy. So I think South Alabama's offense just was not able to play their style of football on that side of the ball. And that's what happened in the Troy game. And that's why they lost. And I think that's the same. when You look at this one. When you have Carter Bradley back there. He's a great quarterback. When everyone in the building knows he's throwing the ball trying to dig this team out of a hole it's a lot harder to get things done so I think looking to next year you're going to try to find out okay what did we do wrong in those two games what did we do to make it to where our offense became one-dimensional because this team's at its best when it's more than one-dimensional it's two dimensional you're able to lean into your weapons that you have if you are a Carter Bradley so I'm not going to give him a ton of fault in this game the interceptions as well were things that had to get forced and had to get your team playing, but there's not many quarterbacks in the country that can get themselves out of a 21-0 hole against an explosive explosive offensive attack like Western Kentucky's.
0: Caden, I am standing up for myself right here because you spent the last four months of 2022 accusing me of reading your notes, and the note that you just gave about the Troy game was on mine, so now you're reading my notes to 2023, but Caden, Western Kentucky. I feel like the only football game in terms of tape that they watched was that Troy game because they ran the same exact strategy. They shut down the run and made South Alabama one-dimensional in the passing attack. South Alabama runs for just 44 yards in this game. It was the second lowest compared to just 31 against Troy. You talked about PTSD. I was having flashbacks of that Troy-South Alabama game. Western Kentucky also did a great job of getting penetration, three sacks, seven TFLs, they put on a defensive clinic, and it also came with a really good offensive day.
1: Yeah, when you're Western Kentucky and you can get a plus out of your defense, it's just extra for you. You're used to your offense scoring 40, 50 points a game, and if you're a defense and you know you, you're you good as long as you don't give up usually 35 points, that's that's a different style of play. That's a defensive mindset that's just different than a lot of other teams across the country, but you have to give credit to them for starting off this game hot. Western Kentucky's defense, did stop the run. They did get in the backfield when it mattered and get sacks when it mattered. Even one of Carter Bradley's interceptions was because his arm was getting hit by a defender. So you have to give credit to Western Kentucky for this one. They chose a great time to play one of their best defensive games of the season. It's not going to show up statistically just because South Alabama was effective trying to play catch up a little bit, but you have to give credit to them. Their strong start in this game was just as important as the strong start of their offense as well.
0: Well, Caden, let's move on to Louisiana versus Houston. And Caden, this one was a game that could have gone either way. Louisiana got off to a really hot start, but lose 23-16, snapping a three-game bowl winning streak in the process. This was their first loss in a bowl game since 2018 in the Cure Bowl under Billy Napier. Uh, They were one of two Sunbelt teams to lose to an American Athletic Association member Kane, I mentioned a moment ago, the hot start. They led 13-0 with 7.05 to go in the second quarter. Chandler Fields did what he needed to do, threw a touchdown early on. Almanderas, the kicker, hit back-to-back 42-yard field goals to go up 13-0 at 7.05, Mark. But they just weren't able to hang on after that point.
1: Yeah, when you looked at the start of this Louisiana game, I mean, you would think they are going to blow this team out. Their first drive looked excellent. Chandler Fields was... Strong as confident as I've ever seen him throw. They were getting him moving on a lot of rollouts and he threw an absolute dime to Johnny Lumpkin in the corner of the end zone. They were even going for it on fourth down. So they looked super aggressive and they did some great things on their first drive. But after that, you kind of just saw their production get lower and lower. They weren't able to get the ball in the end zone as much as you want. And you have to give credit to Ken Albandaris for hitting those three big field goals. But I think if they were able to turn some of those field goals just into some points instead of field goals, it would have been huge for them. And they kind of just ran out of gas on the offensive side of the ball as this game went along.
0: It was a mixed bag for fields. Only four completions after halftime through for 134 yards and a touchdown in the first half ultimately replaced by Zion Christ late in that game. Caden, what'd you make of Chandler Fields' performance?
1: I thought he played well in this game, but just not well enough to win the game for this team. I think that he found his weapons and did some great things, but I think he played more of a game manager type of quarterback performance. I think outside of his first draft, he really wasn't playing winning football, really converting those conversions that you need on third down, moving the sticks when you need to, when you are on your side of the field and getting the ball in the end zone. And he got, some pretty good help from his running game as well. I just don't think that he was able to make those explosive plays out of what he was given from an offensive game plan standpoint. I don't know if ULL was trying to play super aggressive in this game, but they played kind of conservative. It might have to do with Chandler Field's style of play as well, but I think if you want to play winning football, you kind of have to play a little bit more aggressive, and they just looked like they were okay having a small lead in this game and weren't really comfortable as far as extending that lead and taking those risks. And when then the game, when they had those turnovers and some costly things happened to them, it kind of bit them.
0: Hey, you know, going into this game, Caden, we talked at length about how Louisiana had a clear advantage in terms of the running game, and they really failed to utilize that advantage in this game, running for just 129 yards. I really felt like Chris Smith had a disappointing game, just 14 carries for 48 yards. I really feel like it was kind of a disappointing year for Chris Smith.
1: I think it was just a disappointing year for the Louisiana run game as a whole. I think to start off the season, we talked about some of the quarterback struggles they had. None of that was getting helped with their running back play at all. I think their offense overall in the beginning of the year was super stagnant. A lot of that was because they did not have that rushing attack they were accustomed to seeing playing so well them in the middle of the season Chris Smith had some games where he was feeling a little bit healthier and was playing well and they got some great play out of Draylon Washington too but I think down the stretch we kind of just saw them revert back to the offensive rushing attack that we saw at the beginning of the season Chris Smith had a great hurdle in this game a great highlight play but outside of that wasn't able to be super productive and I think it's going to be very interesting to see moving forward in the offseason how much Louisiana stays true to this running game that's really been consistent for them year after year after year but now with Billy Napier gone, some of those running backs they were accustomed to seeing from the year before, like a Montreal Johnson, who's at Florida now. It's going to be tough to see if they can continue to produce at that position, specifically something that's been their bread and butter for quite a t- long time.
0: Hey, turnovers hurt Louisiana in this game. They gave up three turnovers in the game, an interception, two forced fumbles. Uh, Caden, this was just the third time this year that Louisiana's given up three turnovers and And you look at those three games, a loss to South Alabama, a loss to Southern Miss, and now a loss to Houston. Uh, Chris threw a late interception in this game, but the defense did everything they could to keep Louisiana in this game. But you've seen that throughout the year. The defense has been really good, but when you start to rack up those turnover numbers, it's just not going to be good enough.
1: Definitely. And those two Chris Smith fumbles in the second half down the stretch were just big. The first one allowed Houston to build some offensive momentum that they just did not have all game because Louisiana's defense did play so well. And then the other one was a tie ball game in the red zone. You get another fumble when you have a chance to go up. So just two costly turnovers. You obviously don't want turnovers at all. But when you do have them in those big time moments, they're a little bit more magnified, but you have to give credit. The Clayton tuned down the stretch. I think in that last drive, he used his legs in a different dynamic that he wasn't necessarily using as effectively against the Louisiana, the Louisiana offense, and it paid off big for them and led to that last touchdown that sealed the deal when you hit a guy like Tank Dell, who's one of the best receivers in the nation, but also have to give credit to their defense, too. I think Dell had one of his worst games. He scored twice, but both of those times were in the red zone when Houston had a good drive and got down there. But outside of that, he only had 44 yards on the day. They limited explosive plays. That was his lowest receiving yards game of the season. So you have to give credit across the board of Louisiana's defense. I think they did whatever they could in this game, but were just ultimately on the field too much and on the field at the wrong time to be able to win.
0: Well, Caden, we've got two games left and we'll go through these fairly quickly. Georgia Southern versus Buffalo. And Caden, the more I dug into this game, the more I'm just dumbfounded how Georgia Southern lost this football game. Uh they lose it twenty-three to twenty-one to Buffalo. Georgia Southern now three and two in bowl games in their FBS history, but they have lost two of their last three. Uh, they end the season with a losing record of six and seven and Caden, I'm going to pat myself on the back here. I brought out a stat in the preview and said if this was a tight game, advantage Buffalo, and Buffalo wins a tight game here. They're 5-2 and two now in games decided by a touchdown this season. Caden, I will say this game got started in an ugly way. Just 105 yards of combined offense between the two teams. Georgia Southern was hurt by early penalties, 3 for 20 yards. But the first quarter of this game, you could have turned this game on in the second quarter and really enjoyed the football game a lot better.
1: Yeah, and you have to give credit to Buffalo's defense for their strong red zone performance. I think that's really what kept this game from opening up in the beginning. You talk about a 6-14 to halftime lead for Buffalo, and six, those six points were just off of field goals from red zone stops from Buffalo. And then Southern comes out and launches a deep ball in their first possession to Josh Thompson that really opened the game up. 79-yard touchdown pass with a two-point conversion to tie the game, and that's really when the game started. There wasn't a ton of fireworks in the first half, and that really favors a Buffalo team. When you get Georgia Southern, to kind of slow down and play your style of ball and keep them off the field as much as you can. It's going to be very beneficial. So you have to give your hats off to Buffalo for kind of leaning into their strengths. And with that kind of leaning away from what Georgia Southern's traditionally good at, as far as being able to run up the score, throw the ball deep down the field and get in the end zone.
0: Hey, both quarterbacks played pretty well in this game. Kyle Van Treese had another big game, 352 yards, two touchdowns and an interception. Cole Snyder with Hardly any backups behind him, 265 yards through the air in a touchdown, was pretty impressed with the quarterback play in this game. But Caden, another area that I really think Georgia Southern let themselves down is they could not get third down stops. Buffalo goes 12 for 19 on third down. Georgia Southern had two chances late in this football game to stop Buffalo on third down, get the football back and give Kyle Treese a chance to score. Uh, but they weren't able to do that. Buffalo came into this game one of the worst teams in the Mac at converting on third down, but they went up against the Georgia Southern defense that just couldn't stop them at key times.
1: Yeah, and you have to give credit for Georgia Southern defense. They've played much, much worse during the year, trust me. They've given up more than 23 points in games, but I think when you look at Their performance as a whole, they made some big plays when it mattered in the beginning. But down the stretch, you talk about those third downs. They were converting them at a very high clip. And you have to give a credit to wide receiver Justin Marshall. I meant to mention him when we were previewing this game. But he's just a monster out wide. And he's a guy who's always a candidate for you got mossed if he's ever out on the field. And on third down, they were feeding him. It was just as good as a short run play, as a QB sneak as far as getting him the ball and converting third downs. But you talked about it. Buffalo's ability to run the ball, play good defense, and keep Georgia Southern out of the end zone. Would it matter? Really allowed them to dominate the time of possession. They held the ball for 38 minutes in this game. And you beat teams like Georgia Southern by keeping their offense off of the field, by keeping Kyle Van Treese off of the field. And then those two Turnovers in the second half ended up being super costly. You have the Caleb Hood fumble that led to a field goal and the Kyle Vantrese interception that also led to a field goal. If you look at just the score of the game, those clearly would have made a big difference. So have to give a shout out to Buffalo for coming up when it mattered on offense and defense.
0: Georgia Southern, Caden, it did feel like at times they struggled to establish the run game in this contest. They ran for just 89 yards on 20 carries in this game. They had come into this contest averaging 141 yards per game on the season, and I would have to say that if they had gotten 140 yards or anything close to that, they probably won this football game.
1: Yeah, it definitely would have helped in this game. You didn't see... a them really run the ball very well and I think all season we've been talking about how they usually run the ball based off of their pass game. They run it off of their pass game and they want to get your defense on their heels worried about the pass, pass, pass and then run off of that and in this game with them playing from behind, I just don't think it was a complimentary thing that they could accomplish. I think that they had to prioritize the pass a little bit more than they probably wanted to because they were playing from behind for the most part but they just didn't have their guys in there as well that you're used to seeing rushing the ball for them. You had OJ Arnold getting the most carries I think he's gotten all season having to put a lot on his play and I just think it was a little bit off for Georgia Southern as far as not being able to run the ball and then on the contrary Buffalo being able to run the ball you saw how much that was able to help them and I think that was a huge storyline in this game as far as the contrasting run games of both of these offenses
0: I mean Buffalo didn't have a great running game just 122 yards on 43 carries but they just wore Georgia Southern down this is a Georgia Southern team They gave up 240 yards per game on the ground during the regular season, so they actually had a pretty good defensive day against the run. Buffalo just kept running the football, though, and somehow they held the ball for 38 minutes in this game.
1: Yeah, 43 carries will do that to you. You talked about it. There's only so many times in the game where you can – let the clock tick, tick, tick and keep the ball out of the hands of Georgia Southern. And sometimes just getting your lead running back 27 carries in the game will be enough to keep the other team off of the field. And when they are on the field, if they're not playing a tip top shape, if they are having turnovers and are having some of the miscues that Georgia Southern have, that's going to cost you. So it's not always going to be flashy as far as Buffalo and some action and even some sunball play. But I think they did what they had to do in this game in the run game to win.
0: Imagine what Frank Gore could have done on 43 carries in this game. Uh, we'll never know, though. Uh, let's move on, Caden, to a game that really just was super disappointing. Coastal Carolina, East Carolina. ECU goes on to win 53-29. to Coastal Carolina now in their three bowl games in their program history, one and two. They lose the final three games of the year after that canceled game at Virginia. Caden, we have harped about how bad the offense was down the stretch of this season, but the defense might have the trump card. 48 points per game allowed in the last three games of the year on average. Uh, they were pretty bad in this game, and ECU and Holt nailers really took advantage.
1: It was just a recipe for disaster, I think, when you look at this Coastal Carolina defense and what we've seen from them up until this and what they produced. I think if you look at the ends of the season, the defense was looking very suspect, giving up a ton of points, a ton of yardage. And I think when you have players like a Jordan Strong, like a Lance Boykin, opting out for the NFL draft, and then on top of that, having a Josiah Stewart leaving your team for Michigan via the trans portal, it's just a recipe for disaster. This defense was already not very good down the stretch with some of his best players. And then when you take those players out of it, and then combine that with the ECU team that was fresh off of a 49-point outing against Temple, their best scoring output of the season. It was just a recipe for disaster. The defensive stock for Coastal was just drastically dropping throughout the year, and the ECU offensive stock was going up. And they all met in this game, and that's why you get the result you get. You get 53 points put on your head, and it's definitely going to be an off-season where Coastal Carolina is looking in the mirror as a defense and saying, what do we need to fix, what do we do wrong, and who do we need to put in here that's going to make some plays for us.
0: Caden, we will always be left to wonder what could have been in this game because with 8.52 to go in the second quarter, Grayson McCall ran up the middle, dove into the end zone, had the touchdown to give Coastal Carolina the lead, but landed on his head in the game. He didn't return with an upper body injury. The rest of the game was replaced by Jared Guest. Uh, And we never did see Grayson McCall again in this game. And Caden, at 8.52 in the second quarter, we thought that we, had never, that we would never see Grayson McCall in a Coastal Carolina uniform again until after the season he shocks the world and announces he's coming back to Conway. But if Grayson McCall had played in this game, would it have made a difference on the final scoreline?
1: I think it definitely would have made a difference. I don't think I can go on the limb and say that they would have won this game just looking at the amazing offensive performance that eastern carolina have but i think it was interesting in this one we've seen Grayson mccall not be a part of this offense before in games we've never seen him get taken out at a certain point of the game we've seen full games with jared guest at the helm but seeing Grayson mccall start off this game and start to catch his rhythm and then see him get taken away i think it really magnified how much he means to this offense the running game isn't nearly as dynamic with him not in there running the show especially if you look at and on those third downs where you need conversions on the red zone play, like he scored when he kind of sniffs that red zone, I guess McCall just has a knack of getting in there. And it's unfortunate that he got hurt when he did. But I think even if you look at the quarter and a half of football that he did play, Throws for 136 yards. The team ends with 212 yards. I mean, there was only 76-yard difference there as far as him playing a quarter and a half of the game and the rest of the game being taken over by Jared Guest. So he's a huge loss for this team. I think he was really starting to catch his groove in this one as far as looking at what he was doing in the run game and how he was able to hit some of his receivers. And I think a big what-if for this team will be if he was able to play not only in this game healthy but down the stretch for this team healthy when you look at their entire season as a whole.
0: Yeah, you mean, you have to imagine if they had won a Sunbelt championship and were playing in the Cure Bowl, guys like Lance Boykin to Jordan Strong, maybe even Josiah Stewart are still playing in this football game. But let's give ECU just a little bit of flowers here. Holden Aylers had a huge game. Keaton Mitchell, who's now announced that he's going to the NFL, also had a big performance. Aylers threw for 300 yards, five touchdowns, also ran for another, completed 68% of his passes. And Keaton Mitchell, who's been one of the best running backs in the American all year long, 127 yards on the ground and a touchdown. Those two difference makers for ECU.
1: Definitely. And going into this game, we knew they were going to be big difference makers. And I thought Keaton Mitchell just played an excellent game. Some of his explosive runs that he was able to create and some of the tackles that he was able to break were very impressive. And he was a a handful for Coastal Carolina's defense all night, and especially when it mattered most. And I think when you look at Holden Aylers, they only had one sack on him. He was able to sit in the pocket with his left-handed throwing motion that looks a little bit unorthodox and just dice up the secondary the secondary of this coastal carolina team has always been a weakness and i think if you look at the wide receiving core in this game and Holden Ailers, they just had an absolute field day all types of contested catches all types of getting by the last defender and getting those deep balls connected i think it was just a master class performance for this offense and i think even just their willingness to go for it on fourth down just kind of showed their lack of fear in this coastal carolina defense and kind of just trickle to the team as a whole when you look at the offensive show they put on
0: Well, Coastal Carolina struggles down the stretch. They lose their last three and now an offseason of questions in Conway. will be interesting to see who they run out there next year. Well, that'll do it in our bowl season recap episode. The 2022 Sunbelt season is officially behind us and the offseason now awaits. Caden and I have really appreciated all the support that you, our listeners, have shown the podcast throughout its four-month existence. We're both really excited for some of the off-season content that we have planned for you. Here's a quick reminder. We'll be back on our normal schedule Monday for the first of our Sunbelt in-review series episodes. And Caden, I might say that this is one of the biggest guests that we've had on the podcast yet. We'll speak with Sunbelt Conference Commissioner Keith Gill to gain his perspective on the league's historic season. You won't want to miss that episode on Monday. Thanks so much for listening. We both continue to enjoy these episodes of the Prairie & Smith podcast, and we certainly hope you do too. If you did, take a moment, subscribe to the show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss another episode. Also, consider dropping us a five-star rating on Spotify or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out, and we would love to hear from you. Lastly, if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Prairie & Smith. We consistently post Content each week about the Sun Belt, its student athletes, and the 14 member institutions. Well, that's goodbye for now. We'll talk to you again soon.